No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring too much. Welcome back. I'm Katherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hopmeyer, and this is No Gray Zone Podcast. This week's episode is going to focus on sexual assault prosecutions. And Katherine and I have had the privilege of trying many cases over the course of our careers, from assaults to homicides. But I think we would both say that sexual assault cases are some of the most difficult to both prepare and try as prosecutors. I couldn't agree more. We talked about the abysmal statistics of sexual assault convictions and incarceration already. Five out of every 1,000 rapes. So today we're going to cover the how and the why. How we as prosecutors prepare and why it's so hard to get a conviction. So every prosecutor will tell you that trial preparation is unique for every attorney. It's going to look different no matter, you know, who it is. I happen to make witness charts, exhibit lists. I prepare my discovery in individual folders by witness. For trial, I will run through every single piece of evidence, whether it's paper or physical, and I put it in order. And I I tend to pre-mark it in my exhibit list, which I provide then to the courtroom clerk. I also make PowerPoints for each witness with evidence so that it's easy for the jury to see it when I'm publishing it and I'm admitting it into evidence. But that's my process. And that's just the first part of prepping a case. I mean, that's the part you can do on your own. But then you've actually got to prepare the witnesses. And it's a similar and long process. Generally, I'll meet with a witness three to four times, and even more times if the victim is a child. Although I'm not necessarily doing trial prep every time I meet with them. Exactly. The first few times we meet with our victims, we're usually trying to build rapport. We're trying to get to know them. We're trying to let them get to know us. We're showing them the courtroom. You know, we might give them an opportunity to review their recorded statement or their written statement just so that they can remember, you know, all of the details and everything they've told the police. Because by this time, it's been months or sometimes even years since they've originally given their statement. And then after those first few meetings, that's when you really get into prepping for trial. And everybody preps the witness a little different. When I'm actually speaking to my victims and witnesses about trial preparation, I generally go through everything that happened. I have them tell me in their own words. I like to make my questions fit how the witness is comfortable speaking. Of course, I have to interject specific questions if I need to clarify a point. Sometimes I need to, especially with a child victim, say, when you're pointing down there, what do you mean? And I have to get them to actually give us the body parts and what actually happened as opposed to just pointing or using nicknames or other child jargon. And sometimes I need to make sure I'm hitting a legal standard, like identifying the criminal defendant as the person who did the crime or establishing the actual jurisdiction of the crime. I mean, oftentimes I have to have them give the town and the county 
that the crime happened. And when we speak in everyday life, we don't sit here and say, oh, yeah, it happened on Main Street in this county because people generally know what county we're in. I'll also go over the exhibits or evidence that I'm going to show the victims and the witnesses from photos to physical evidence, text messages if they're applicable. I need to make sure that the witness can actually identify the evidence that I want to use and be able to speak knowledgeably about that piece of evidence. And I'll tell you, no matter how many times I meet with a victim, no matter how many times we review the facts, nothing can truly prepare a victim for sitting in front of 14 strangers and having to talk about the most traumatic moment of their life. Imagine just trying to talk about consensual sex in front of strangers, let alone rape. And you're looking across the courtroom and you're seeing people who look as old as your grandparents or maybe somebody who looks as young as one of your children. There is no true way to prepare a victim for having to testify. So no matter what we do to prepare them for the questions we're going to ask, it's still hard. And the last thing we do is try to prepare them for what to expect on cross-examination. And that's really hard to do. You know, we can't be inside of the defense attorney's mind, and neither Catherine or I have practiced as defense attorneys. But over the years, you do learn the tricks of each individual defense attorney. And so it's really us providing the victims an overview of what cross-examination is going to look like. We talk about whether it's going to be a tough and mean attorney or a tough and nice attorney. We talk about what facts they're going to focus on. And we remind our victims time and time again that all we are asking them to do is tell the truth. We tell them if you don't know the answer to a question, you just say, I don't know or I don't remember. And that what the most important thing is, is that they answer honestly. That's the only thing that really matters is that they tell the truth. You know, we also go through courtroom procedures, uh, how it works when we object, you know, what they should do when we or the defense attorney make an objection, what happens and what they should do if they need a break. I usually tell you know my victims, you're going to have to finish answering your question, and then we can take a break and step outside if you need to. As Melissa said, you know, over the years, we get a little bit of experience of what to expect from the defense attorneys. When Melissa talked about where they might focus, that's because we've learned that there are three most commonly used defenses in sexual assault cases. First is consent. The second, the victim was asking for it. And the third, wasn't me or prove it. We've talked a lot about consent and what it really means. And that's because truly most of our cases, about 80 to 95% are what we call consent cases. And that's where the defense makes the argument that it wasn't sexual assault because the victim consented to sex. And almost all of our alcohol intoxicated or drug intoxicated cases, that's going to be the defense. Didn't matter that the victim was passed out. Didn't matter that the victim was too impaired to legally give consent. The defense is the victim actually agreed to have sex. And he or she is asking for it is a very similar defense. But the difference is that the defense never really says the victim says yes. What they do instead is that they imply by the clothing that the victim was wearing or the behavior that the victim engaged in that that is what caused the sexual act to happen. That's what caused the rape. And I know that you are probably sitting there with a horrified face saying, do defense attorneys really say she's asking for it or he was asking for it? And let me tell you, one, they do. And second, Catherine and I have had to fix our faces many a times in a courtroom. But this still happens in 2020. 
It was only two years ago that I had an Uber rape case where my victim lost consciousness in the back of an Uber before she was taken to a motel, dragged out of that vehicle, and sexually assaulted by the driver. And the defense was that her short dress and that her lack of panties was that she was asking for it. She was unconscious. And they kept bringing up the lack of panties and the lack of her underwear throughout the entire trial. And I probably didn't fix my face during that trial. And Catherine has had cases where the victim is changed into like a sleeping shirt and shorts. And that was paraded around in the courtroom to say that her victim was asking for it. Yeah, don't remind me. It hasn't even been a year since that case. That was the defense. Here the victim is sleeping in her own bed in her own house. And the defense was because she was wearing a little tank top and little sleep shorts. She clearly asked for it. Didn't matter that the defendant came into her bedroom without her being aware she was asleep. It was her clothing choices that made that sexual assault happen. Still makes me hot. Uh, So we see consent and the victim was asking for it in a lot of our cases. Prove it, it, I didn't do it, is typically reserved for stranger cases where identity and DNA come into play. And listen, every single defendant is entitled under the law to a competent and zealous defense. But we think it's important for you to know that the stereotypes in our culture carry over into the courtroom and it has real consequences for real survivors of sexual assault. You know, I think that one of the favorite lines that I use in many of my closing arguments in sexual assault is that out of all the types of cases I've prosecuted over the years, I have never had to defend my victim except in rape cases. I have never said in a closing argument that a robbery victim wasn't asking for it because he was wearing expensive shoes or that a burglary victim, that she lived in too fancy of a house and that, you know, that didn't mean that she didn't, that she deserved to get burglarized. And yet, when I stand in front of a sexual assault juror, I find myself time and time again telling that jury that the victim's outfit or the victim's behavior did not mean that that victim deserved to be raped. And it can feel exhausting. And this comes down to the last part of trial, living with the outcomes. From the first time we meet with a victim until the jury begins their deliberations, we try and prepare them for all potential outcomes. Because sexual assault cases are never a guarantee, we prepare everything we can and we hope for a guilty so that we can bring justice to our victim and hold the defendant accountable. However, as much as we hope for guilties, there are the not guilties and they haunt you. Boy, do they haunt you. I I know that every time I get a not guilty for weeks after I rack my brain about what questions I didn't ask or what argument I forgot to make, it keeps me up at night. I have cried with my victims, and I have cried for my victims, and it's lasted weeks and months. These cases are so personal to our survivors, and it's personal to us. It takes a ton of bravery to sit on the stand and talk about one of the most personal and horrifying moments of your life. And for them, when the jury comes back, no matter what reason they decide for a not guilty, the survivor just feels that they were not believed. It's our job to help them process that. Just in case you think our job ends after we rest our case, it doesn't. I keep in touch with many of my survivors. I keep a folder of graduation announcements, wedding announcements, birth announcements. I get text messages with, here's my baby. Here's where we are now. Because their success after trial 
whether we win or lose, is important to us. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much for joining us for No Gray Zone podcast. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe and find us on social media, No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. There are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response when it comes to sexual harassment. Thank you for listening. This has been a No Gray Zone podcast. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you leave?